lack of accountability, lack of representation, oppression, corruption, dysfunctional institutions leading to dysfunctional economies where people can't make enough to survive. And there's only so much you can take of that before you reach the end of your tether. Hello there, how are you all? Did you have a good Easter? Well, this has been a weekend full of football, and today Real Bedford can finally secure the title. We just need one more point, so keep your fingers crossed for us. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have Ahmed Gatnash on the show. Now, Ahmed is an activist and the co-founder of the Kawakibi Foundation, and his story is absolutely wild. Now, he was working closely with Jamal Khashoggi before he was killed by the Saudis, and Alex Gladstein got in touch and said he is someone I definitely have to get on the show, and when Alex recommends someone to me, I always listen. Now, in this show, we get into the human rights in the Middle East, Twitter and the role of free speech, and the Saudi government's alleged involvement in the blackmailing of Jeff Bezos. This story is absolutely wild. Now, if you've got any questions about this or anything else you can hit me up my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com how you doing Ahmed? i'm good thanks how are you yeah good nice to meet you likewise like, like i said I, th- I think we've met before I'm, i've definitely seen you before it must be the oslo freedom forum yeah well look you come highly recommended as someone to talk to from alex gladstein he's a dear friend of mine in the show and anyone who tells me i should speak to i say yes every single time uh spoken to Danny a lot about this interview my brother who's a researcher there's there's a lot to get through here that's going to be a fun one yeah fun I'm not sure that's the word but there's a lot to get through here so, um, Danny knows me whilst it's a Bitcoin show uh, these types of topics I find a lot more interesting to get into okay so a lot of people listening might not know who you are so give a background to who you are and what it is you do and I think we'll roll from there So I run a small human rights organization focused on the future of liberty in the Middle East and North Africa specifically. Um, We try and take a very long-term perspective. What we're not trying to do is campaign on like causes for the next month, the next three months, next year. We're trying to look at the next generation and the actions we can take today that have radical consequences for how the future plays out. And how did you end up in this position? Um, by accident. Okay. Um, I can't really find a better answer than that. But um, I was um, at university when the uh, the Middle East uprisings happened in 2011, and I was um, very inspired. It was one of those you know formative events that makes you shape your identity around it, and uh, I got sucked in. Well, I'm going to have a lot of questions about the Arab Spring because uh, it's something obviously I'm clearly aware of. I followed. Uh, I followed it both online and followed it on the news, but I don't really know the full details of what sparked it or what were the outcomes were. But let me just focus firstly to help me understand a little bit more about uh, the region in terms of human rights. You, you talk about your found, uh, your foundation works on human rights within the Middle East. Yeah. What are the primary issues that you guys focus on, the primary concerns with regards to human rights? We're taking a holistic perspective rather than a specific right or a specific cause. And we're looking at the the issues that unlock everything, basically. Like we start with the vision that we want the region to be prosperous, to be stable, to be safe, and to be on an equal footing with every other region in the world rather than this cesspool of authoritarianism and, and corruption and repression. And 
what are the considerations therefore with that that you have to have for religion because some of the things that we may consider oppressive uh, either come from a religious context or a religious context is used to justify them? Yeah, that's a good question because um, dictators are big on using religion and it's a particularly pertinent question for us because a lot of the team, including myself, are observing Muslims. Um, but that's also where the activism comes from because a lot of this is driven by our disgust at seeing our religion used in this way, like to justify the oppression of women and like blatant corruption. I um, When I was in New York, uh, I, uh, I was with a taxi driver and talking about Islam. Uh, I was interviewing uh, a lady called Laura Luma um, and I, I think her observations of Islam are wrong. Um, but coincidentally, on the way to the interview, uh, my, my driver uh, was a Muslim, so I asked him about this. And one of the things he explains to me about Islam is that it is a peaceful religion. And whilst my religion may uh, not approve, for example, of people who are homosexual, he said he himself is not homophobic because my religion uh, teaches me to tolerate and accept you for who you are. Is, is that, was that a fair explanation? Muslims have different ways of squaring this circle. Okay. Um, some people choose the like live and let live. Some people have interpretations that allow them to be even more accepting. Some people less so. Um, but the wider point is that religions develop over time as cultures do and people reconcile themselves to new ideas and, and figure out how to adapt themselves to the world and that's a natural process that happens in every religion but that can be cut short when you have a context where you don't have the freedom to discuss these issues and negotiate new positions on them and that's basically the position that islam's had for the last at least 100 years probably longer if we include colonialism that um the structures which um, uphold certain perspectives are entrenched by political forces and we can't get rid of them and they prevent us from having free discussions. So how do you interpret that in the context of what happened with, say, Charlie, Charlie Ebdo? How do they pronounce it? Ebdo, yeah. Ebdo, yeah. But in that, but my understanding is that their representation of the Prophet Muhammad was offensive and offensive to Muslims, but at the same time, their defense was that this is a free speech yeah, on a personal perspective, I've never really got people who get that wildly upset about representations. I mean, the magazine is pretty Islamophobic. Um, okay. They've published some disgusting stuff, in my opinion, over the years. Um, okay. They've, you know, agitated against refugees. They take any opportunity to demean Muslims. But at the same time, I don't feel particularly drawn to commit an act of violence against them. I just think they're douchebags. I didn't realize that. So I didn't realize they were... Uh Perp I mean, obviously, they're being purposely uh, provocative with uh, representation of the Prophet Muhammad, but I didn't realize that. that yeah, over it's a, a period pretty of time, consistent pattern. Yeah, right. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, let's help me understand. Let's talk a little bit about the Arab Spring. Uh, for people who don't know how, what sparked it, what was the trigger? Um, I think it's a trap to look for a specific event and say okay. this caused it. Um, what we basically had was like a pressure vessel which was shut for decades and the pressure built up and eventually one straw broke the camel's back and that could have been any particular straw. Um, it just happened to be when this fruit seller called Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia 
um, had his fruit cart confiscated and he was so crushed and humiliated that he went and stood in front of a public administration administration building and poured gasoline on himself and set himself on fire. And nobody expected what came next, but it just spread like wildfire. So that triggered protests within Tunisia, which spread out through the region. Yeah. Um, everyone watched Tunisia as the protests grew. Um, I still remember so vividly the day that we turned on the TV to see this press conference um, stating that Ben Ali had fled the country. Um, and people were like screaming in the streets, Ben Ali's run, Ben Ali's done a runner. And um, people were inspired. People started coming out in Egypt, in Bahrain, in Yemen, in Syria, um, basically empowered to say, yeah, we're fed up with this shit too. Where were you at the time? I was here in the UK. You were here in the UK? Yeah, I was born here. Okay, but you were following it. Yeah. You've obviously got friends and family in the region. Um, yeah, most of my, pretty much all of my extended family are in Libya. Okay. I've got questions about Libya as well. Okay, so this this spread out throughout the Middle East, but the there were some commonalities of what was happening from region to region of why people were pissed off. Yeah, it's basically the same institutional structure, lack of accountability, lack of representation, oppression, corruption, dysfunctional institutions uh, leading to dysfunctional economies where people can't make enough to survive. And there's only so much you can take of that before you reach the end of your tether. Are there any regions or any countries within the Middle East that are different? Um, the oil monarchies are different because of their economies. They're so sustained by oil wealth that they didn't have those economic pressures. Um, this was like just after Occupy Wall Street and the global economic crisis, if you remember. So yeah. um, a lot of places in the world were dealing with that economic pressure. And oil monarchies had the kind of the buffer to be able to deal with it slightly better, whereas you had spiraling food prices and massive unemployment in a lot of North Africa. So when you're talking about the oil monarchies, Qatar, Saudi... Yeah, uh, the UAE, yeah. Bahrain. Yeah. Okay, and so when these uh, when the Arab Spring um, protests were, you said spread like wildfire... Was there coordination between people in different countries? There was, uh, to an extent, um, but it wasn't like there was a single master plan. It was basically people getting inspired, um, people speaking to contacts. How did you organize this? What did you do? Um, people starting their own Facebook groups and planning their own events. Um, like it was the early days of social media in the region as well. So people were inspired by what happened in Tunisia. And at the same time, they were inspired by this new ability to coordinate and to reach their fellow citizens. Um, we had a very closed information sphere for decades before that. Like the government controls the public squares, the government controls the published media, like the printed word, the printing presses, the government controls the TV channels, the radio channels. So you can't really get an unfiltered perspective from anywhere and then suddenly social media appears and suddenly you're connected to people and you realize that everyone feels exactly the same as you do. But there have been instances where, I think I certainly know of it in Iran, where they've blocked or they've blacked out the social media channels. I think Twitter was blocked at one point in Iran. Did they try and, did the state try and fight back by doing this? Yeah, it happened in a lot of places. It happened in Libya. Um, after, as it was spiraling into a civil war, they basically cut internet for the entire country and we mostly lost contact with our families for like a few months. 
Um, they did it in Egypt. Um, at the time, Twitter introduced the SMS to tweet service, um, which kind of added a lifeline. Um, but it was by and large too late. Because people, people had already realized, yeah. The, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement eventually failed because of a lack of coordination and leadership. Um, within these protests, these uprisings, was there any coordination? Were people trying to rally around opposition uh, parties? Were they trying to, what were they trying to establish? What were there they was, yeah, there was a massive amount of grassroots coordination. Yeah. Um, but because of the legacy of decades of authoritarianism, there was kind of an allergy to hierarchy and structure. And that's one of the things that ultimately did the whole movement in. Yeah, that was the, prob the same problem with Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Is um, that, uh, sadly, within these, these things, you, you often do need structural leadership or somebody to get behind. Yeah, and um, it was even worse because in the West, you often have alternative institutions that you can rally behind. Mm -hmm. And like in Libya, there were basically 40 years of having no institutions at all, um, not even properly functioning government institutions. So as soon as the government unraveled, there was nothing and it was complete anarchy. Yeah. What, what was that in the timeline to Gaddafi being, as I remember it, he was, he was, uh, he was essentially hauled off the streets and killed on the streets, wasn't he? He was dragged out of a tunnel, yeah. like a sewage tunnel. Yeah. Um, like a rat they used it, didn't they? Pretty much. Um, yeah, that was very satisfying to Libyans because that was the term that he'd used for the protesters as he as threatened to like, hunt them down one by one and kill them all. Right. But uh, his death le has led to a power vacuum. Is it still in civil war? Um, it's in a lull right now. Um, the different sides have entrenched. Um, in the west of the country, basically have militias occupying districts and cities and regions and suburbs and occasionally fighting, occasionally allying and just relentlessly sucking the blood from the population. And in the east, you have a would-be military dictator who's managed to clamp down on things a lot more over there. So is Libya in a better or worse place? Um, in terms of everyday life for the average person, it's definitely worse. Okay. But it's the consequence of what came before. Of course. So, you know, if you reflect on this and think, would there have been a better... Is there a better way or is this, the, is this like the natural order that the country has to go through to get past a dictator, has to go through these, this power vacuum, this yeah. next battle? I think the optimal path is definitely institutional reform over a long period. But that's obviously only possible if the institutions are willing to be reformed and don't immediately try to kill you. And that's the lesson that like most of human history shows because that's how it happened in the UK. It was like many centuries of slow institutional reform as the monarchy was stripped of powers one by one and they were given to parliament or different institutions. We have seen limited reforms in places like Saudi, I believe. And I say very limited in that we've seen certain reforms that have led to a few more freedoms for females. Social freedoms. Social yeah. freedoms, yeah. And we certainly saw reforms in Afghanistan led by the the government that's put in place by the US, which have collapsed since the, the US has left. Yeah. Have, have you seen any significant successes in anywhere with reforms? Not really. So um, Gary, Pas Gary Kasparov put it very succinctly when he said the only real reform in a dictatorship is to be less of a dictatorship. And the problem with social reforms in Saudi Arabia, for example, is that 
just as they're given, they can be taken away at any moment because the actual power imbalance hasn't changed. So on reflection, say, with Libya, do you think the uprising was a good thing? I think it was inevitable. And hopefully we're going to look back in a few decades and say, yeah, that was part of our path towards a more stable reason, uh, a more stable region. But it hasn't been pleasant to live through or to watch. Is there anything that Western governments could be doing to help or support this? Or do they just always make things worse? They mostly make things worse. Um, and that's a product of a lot of different things. One of them is the chronic short-termism. Um, so Obama had this interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, I think, in his last couple of years in office, where he basically said, like, yeah, my biggest mistake was that I took my eye off the ball. I thought the Brits were handling it and the Brits thought I, were, I was handling it. And in the meantime, huh? um, yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, this country, which had had no institutions for over 40 years and no freedom of speech, was told, you guys are free now, hold elections, you're good. Yeah. And then when um, there was a dispute about the election, there's no kind of process for sorting that out. There are no alternate authorities to appeal to. There's nothing. Hmm. Uh, it seems like an unusual, naive thing for Obama to be saying. I mean, uh, what do you mean we thought you were handling well, it? Well, the thing is, he doesn't really care. It doesn't matter to him whether Libya thrives or burns. And that's another kind of chronic problem with um, Western policymaking in the region is that they don't actually care about our well-being. And much as they will laud these um, lofty ideals of human rights and democracy, it's actually about the bottom line for them. Like, what's in it for us? How much can we profit? Is there oil? Can we sell you guns? Exactly, yeah. Which the British government have a long history of selling weapons to Saudi. Pretty much anyone who'll buy them, but yeah, especially yeah. Saudi. And um, it's that cyclical short-sightedness because it will eventually blow up in your face and you'll be dragged in to do an intervention or do some peacekeeping or, you know, get involved in a conflict one way or another. Or there'll be like a terrorist movement that grows up in a power vacuum that you've created. And after you deal with that, you'll make your commitments to human rights and democracy and reform and then just start behaving in exactly the same way again. Are these potentially unsolvable problems? I think they're very simple problems. I just think unsolvable, that... Unsolvable, though. Yeah, they're definitely solvable if we approach them with a different kind of thinking to the one that created the problem. And that's what we're not doing. Okay, so what created the problem? How far do you want me to go back? Educate me. So me and uh, my colleague Iyad al-Baghdadi wrote a book um, a couple of years ago called The Middle East Crisis Factory. And we basically go back to the end of colonialism. So we'd been, as a region, we've been under colonialism for um, a few hundred years, depending on where. Um, and we were left with no institutions, um, uneducated populations, desperate poverty. Um, and in the vacuum, like European powers withdrew after the Second World War because they were basically broke and couldn't maintain these colonies anymore. Um, and in the vacuum, authoritarians came up to fill the void. And um, in response to years and decades of authoritarianism, you have people who are radicalized, who want to overthrow them by force. Um, in some of these countries, the West was against the local dictator. In other countries, they were staunch allies like Saudi Arabia. Um, and that determined who the 
terrorist movements decided to pick as targets. Sometimes it was the government, sometimes it was its foreign backers. Um, and what formed is this, what we call the vicious triangle of terrorists, tyrants, and foreign intervention. And um, to the naive mind, these are like in opposition to each other. But actually, each of the points of this, these tri this triangle presents the logic for the continued existence of the others. So why is the dictator there? He's there to guard the independence of the nation and its sovereignty from foreign occupiers. Why are the foreign occupiers coming? Because of terrorists or to bring democracy and get rid of a dictator. And why are the terrorists there? Either to get rid of this dictator who's uh, got his boot on our necks or to fight the foreigners. And it just goes around and around and around. Yeah, it reminds me of that Noam Chomsky book, The Fateful Triangle, regarding the US, Palestine, and Israel. And I haven't read that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a complex uh, book trying to explain the relationship between those three countries. Um, so, did anything good come out of the Arab Spring beyond? And when I say with regards to reforms of the state, not not with uh, regards to people understanding they do have the power to revolt maybe some minor reforms like tunisia was democratic until last year it's now slipped back into authoritarianism but um there's arguably some knowledge of how to do it now and there are some institutions which although they're being dismantled there's hope if um this dictator gets removed again then can re-proceed down that path but i'd say most of the positives were the hope that it created and the belief that there is an alternative and we're not destined to live in this authoritarian hellhole forever. So do you think there may be further waves of similar Arab Springs? I think it's inevitable. Okay. And is there kind of a bubbling of tension at the moment? But I mean, we've seen it in other parts of the world. We've seen it you know, here in the West. We've seen it in France and yeah. Holland. Um, just before COVID, there was a revolution in Algeria. There was a revolution in Sudan. Um, there were mass protests in Lebanon and a few other countries as well. And then basically COVID like put a halt to that completely. I mean, Lebanon is an absolute economic basket case. Yeah, it's a failed state. It's a failed state, yeah. We're planning to visit it actually at some point to go and make a film. Um, uh, but also, I mean, I, I follow Iran with a lot of interest. I mean, I saw already this week, uh, there was an incident where the lady wasn't covering her hair and somebody threw yogurt all over her. He yeah, was arrested I saw that. and she was arrested. But there seems to be a concerted... <laughs> moved by women within the country to push for reforms and more freedoms for women there. And it's there's a lot of tension, but there's a lot of bravery. Yeah, and the government's happening. losing control. Yeah. And I think you're also starting to see um, other segments of the population, like even men basically saying, like siding with the woman in a lot of these street confrontations and attacking the people who are trying to enforce these morality codes and saying we're fed up of this. Are we seeing any reforms there in Iran? I haven't seen any um, institutional reforms, but I'm not an Iran expert. It's, it's strange how this region seems to have a very similar problem from country to country, from state to state. It was a very interconnected region. Before yeah. colonialism, we didn't really have nation-state borders. Um, and we share a lot of cultural aspects. We share a majority religion. Uh, most of the region shares a language. Um, apart from Iran, um, and there are obviously minorities in the region, but there are so many commonalities that that's just continued to the present day. Okay, I wanted to talk to you now about Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi. Um, what is your link to? Or what was your link to Jamal? 
So one of the issues we noticed was extremely pressing in the wake of the Arab Spring was the public sphere. Um, as soon as citizens were able to discuss issues of common concern in a way that um, was free, um, they were able to do things about it and stuff started changing. And Facebook and Twitter were massive drivers of that. And in around 2014, like initially the dictatorships were not ready for it at all. And they were like stopping people in the street to check their phones and things like that, that obviously did nothing. Around 2014, they started to reorganize and they started to get this thing figured out. And there was... Um, so I remember vividly a Saudi cartoonist called Twitter, the Parliament of the Arabs. Like that's how central it became to the region's movements. Like there was no other place where we could get together and meet each other and understand what was going on and how we all felt about it. And they decided to shut that down. So around 2015, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and a few other countries started to flood Twitter specifically, but the internet generally with trolls and bots and like fake content. Um, and they'd basically mob you if you tried to have a discussion, a civil discussion in Arabic. Um, they'd flood your mentions, they'd make it so you couldn't see the replies, they'd harass you, they'd abuse you, they'd threaten you. Um, and it became completely unusable. Um, and it, by and large, it stayed that way until today. Like most people don't tweet in Arabic anymore because it's just not a usable platform. Who Who is driving this? Is it... Is it government departments? Yeah, it's governments um, using technology from, um, there are providers of these tools. Um, a lot of them are connected to Israel. Um, Ironically? We can get into the causes later. Yeah. Um, but um, Saudi Arabia was um, one of the biggest users of these technologies, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And they um, really relentlessly pursued the closing down of online space at the same time as they were closing down physical spaces. Um, this is around the time Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman came to power, MBS. Um, and he started rounding up activists, rounding up intellectuals, uh, public figures of any kind who were independent. But so prior to that, was Saudi a freer state? It was freer before MBS, yeah. Okay. And so what do you think his driving intention was? I mean, obviously to, to have a firmer grip and control of the country, but he would have already had a fairly firm grip and control. Well, he was new to the scene. Um, his dad had just come to the throne and he was becoming crown prince and coming up the hierarchy. And he's basically de facto king at this point. He's fairly um, young as well. For the yeah, world. he's like mid-30s. Um and I guess a lot of it was driven by his personality. He seems to be very controlling, probably an egomaniac um, or a psychopath. Um, like he behaved in a way, even though Saudi Arabia has always been an absolute dictatorship, he behaved in a way that shocked even like other Saudi royals. Like they thought he was extreme, that's how bad it was. So he went about like systematically purging the media as well as the online space. Um, and we started um, communicating with Twitter about what was going on. Um, like we were telling them, like, your platform's becoming unusable for us. It was so important. And now look what it's become. Why aren't you doing anything? And they weren't that respons responsive initially. So we started literally spoon feeding them information. Who's we? 
uh, my organization. Oh, so the organization meant to mention uh, the start? Yeah, Kawakabi Foundation. Yeah. So we would um, basically pull like thousands of accounts that were clearly like manipulating hashtags or abusing people, things like that. And we'd give them the data dumps and they started to take action on them. Um, but there's a lot more. Like we weren't really making much of a an impact because of the sheer volume of it. Was it a whack-a-mole? Yeah, pretty much. And there was an arms race going on with the platform at the time because they're um, trying to train their algorithms on how to detect stuff. And meanwhile, the bad guys are getting better at doing it and adjusting their techniques. Did you have ideas of ways they could do it better? Or is this just Yeah, we gave them a lot of policy recommendations, but they mostly weren't implemented at the time. Can you talk through any of those that you think would have been particularly important? Um, We told them that they needed to have... um, more understanding of local context so they needed to have more local moderators rather than just moderators for the arabic language as a whole because sometimes a certain dialect will have words that are abusive in that dialect but aren't so in standard arabic like local slang Um, we said there needed to be escalated reporting for certain types of threat in the mina region Um, we told them they needed to protect activists' accounts. So people who have been flagged to them as like, this person's important, this person has like done a a significant thing um, and they're targeting them. Um, You should think about making their account more secure against um, like login from new devices or things like that. Um, But most of these things weren't implemented. So what does free speech for you on Twitter mean? Because some people believe that any speech is free speech. Some people believe that bots, you should be able to get rid of bots because it's fake speech. Some people believe some abusive language should be allowed, but threats of violence shouldn't. Where do you stand on that whole spectrum? Because you've been in the firefight for this. Yeah, I think it requires a lot of nuance. And um, the last decade was basically an exercise in the entire region, dropping a lot of the naiveties and, and developing nuance. Like we realized that just holding an election is not enough to be a democracy. Um, if Russia has elections. Yeah, exactly. Um, we realized that just because you can say whatever you want, that doesn't make your speech completely free. Or just because your speech is free, that doesn't make it a good thing for society necessarily. Uh, like there's a lot more that you need to have. Well, so that would be one area that particularly people would particularly hone in on, that just because you have free speech, it doesn't mean it's good for society. Um, it's the danger of being absolutist about a specific thing. Yeah. Um, like people need to be free to express themselves, but that's um, one element among many elements that constitute a healthy public sphere. Like I can't go and publish your home address publicly on the internet, even though that would be an act of free speech by myself. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. We're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. 
and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes privacy effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like you had to in Wasabi 1, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. Also, you get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously and Wasabi 2.0 makes this so much easier. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. No, of course, no. So I'm I'm with you on that. Any risks, any threats to personal safety, but abusive language is is a tricky area. It is a tricky area. I, um, depends again. Like you can't really legislate these things in yeah. a vacuum because you have to look at what impact is that having. Um, like if people are just rude to each other, then maybe that's your society. Like, but on Twitter, you used to get war. I don't know if they do it anymore, but you used to get warnings. Yeah, if when you, it brings you, up the little box that says most people don't tweet like this. No, no, actually warnings to your account. You've been oh, flagged right, yeah, as being yeah. abusive to somebody or harassing somebody. Yeah. And I just feel like that's died away. Yeah, they've definitely changed their approach on that, but I'm not sure what their thinking is. Yeah. Um, and it's a complicated job they have to do. And oh, yeah. You know, we, should, we should probably get into the fact that it's clearly managed differently under Elon Musk than it was under... I say Jack Dorsey, but really he'd stepped back by them. But let's say pre and post Elon, it seems to be a very different world now. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Uh, Massively. So that collaboration that we used to have with Twitter no longer exists because everyone we knew in the organization is gone. (laughs) Okay. So what? Yeah, we we don't even have an email address anymore. Okay. So... so the relationship you had was with multiple people. Was there a department? Um, there were multiple people. There were multiple departments. Some of them were responsible for the more algorithmic side. Some of them were responsible for Arabic language moderation. Some of them, like there was the trust and safety team globally yeah. um, who look at a lot of the policies and try to understand like um, kind of what you were getting at. That This might be causing a harm here, but what's the overall principle that we should be applying globally or does it not make sense to apply anything globally i mean the tricky thing with these rules is is that there will always be examples where it it's been uh executed with probably a little bit too much strength and sometimes a little bit too weak and there's always always somebody somewhere pissed off with it yeah um and it's never going to be possible to please everyone no no so, so and there's also a danger of like cultural relativism um like you don't want to be told like oh in my culture it's okay to call a certain group of people by this slur yeah and there's also political bias i mean i think pre-elon there was certainly a uh left-wing bias because it 
I would ex- I would expect without knowing the factual data that if you uh, if you saw the voting records of the people who went for Twitter, I think they would lean very much more to the the Democratic Party over the Republicans. That's probably like a tech kind of thing. Like yeah, San it Francisco. Is. It is. It's a, it is a regional tech thing. Um, uh, and but at the same time, that I think there were more examples of say Republicans being uh, removed from the platform, even outside of Mr. Donald Trump. Uh, I think it, there were a lot more examples of that. And so you do get all these different biases, and it's either the, the tricky thing is either it's algorithmic, or there's a human decision, or everyone's free to do what they do. Yeah. But there's no perfect answer here. And with the human decisions, you obviously immediately run into the problem of scaling. Yeah. Like how many humans can you have moderating this stuff? And with the algorithmic stuff, um, like we had a lot of cases where um, the dictatorships realized that if we do a certain thing, we can trick the algorithm into blocking this person's account. Like, right. hey, we can just mass report them for abuse and the algorithm will automatically block their account. And hey, we've silenced an activist for at least a few days or weeks until they manage to get hold of Twitter somehow and get their account reinstated. So what what do you think of what Elon Musk has done? Because obviously Twitter was hemorrhaging money, so he had to make some decisions. But uh, do you think he's introduced... I don't want to. I don't want. I want to be very careful in language and say he's made a Twitter a more dangerous place because it's still just a place of words and images. But do you think he fully understands the consequences of what he's done? No, I don't think he does at all. Um, it's quite clear um, when he tweets about stuff that he, at least initially, he saw it as very one-dimensional. It was just a matter of more free speech. And then he realized that there was the whole bot issue and everything became either free speech or bots. And there's so many shades of gray beyond that. Hmm. And so are you no longer doing anything with Twitter? Have you just abandoned that? Um, We still monitor stuff on there really regularly because dictatorships produce so much disinformation and it's helpful to us to understand what they're producing and who they're targeting and why. Um, but they've cut the API access as well recently. They've made the API something like $42,000 a month. What? Yeah, it used to be free. Uh-huh. Um, did you know about this? No, I did not know that. So now basically like researchers and academics and activists can no longer afford to use it at all. So there's no pass? Yeah, um, so we have to do stuff manually. So I'm just writing this down. I'm going to tweet at and see if I can... <laughs> Get them to reply later. Um, that's that, okay. That's very interesting. And um, do you work with other platforms? Do you is it Instagram, TikTok, Facebook? Or we Twitter? do look at them. Not so much as Twitter. Twitter was just on a different level in terms of usefulness in the region. Um, we spent a lot of time looking at Clubhouse during COVID um, okay. because there was so much social audio going on. Um, we've looked at things like Telegram. Um, we just follow the activity. I mean, so are you basically saying, is it referred to as like Arab Twitter, Arabic Twitter, Middle East Twitter, what it's referred um, to? I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, there's, only... there's not really one community, so. Okay, but but has it essentially highly damaged the Arab-speaking part of Twitter? Is it now becoming almost unusable? It's pretty much unusable. I haven't checked into it for many months, if not years. I, there, there were so many fascinating conversations going on in the early years post-Arab Spring, like people talking about philosophy, people talking about politics, people talking about the economy, um, sharing their ideas, and slowly all of that died. And it never really came back. Um, a lot of the more dynamic parts of that, interestingly, were in Saudi Arabia. There was so some 
really fascinating intellectuals um, looking at um, the economy of the region, um, looking at the social side, looking at like the role of religion in society, um, making proposals, and they're all gone. They're all completely silent now. It does make me think... Um with regards to say, and I'm not picking a side for the sake of this conversation, but they say the Ukraine-Russia conflict that uh, the the propaganda battle that must be waging on Twitter with regards to that, because there is a uh, a side of that war, a Russian side that will want to uh, disseminate misinformation about Ukraine and Zelensky to perhaps turn people more pro-Russia during this conflict and vice versa. Yeah, Russia was one of the pioneers of this whole online social media propaganda okay. uh, wave. Um, we call it Propaganda 2.0 because in the old days, the purpose of propaganda was to make you believe a certain thing. And after, like, I, this happened at least like 12 years ago, but their new purpose isn't to make you believe a certain thing. It's to make you doubt everything. Yes. Um, so you no longer trust anyone. If you can't trust anyone, you can't coordinate, you can't organize. Um, you're just like a conspiracy theorist who fears everyone and everything. Well, I almost find like, I find myself sometimes uh, almost with some kind of, kind of uh, opinion paralysis in that. So, for example, we had, a, we had an interview yesterday where a guy was, how would you put it, Danny? He was... He was um, partially siding with Russia with regards to the conflict. And, uh, you know, yeah. my point was, look, I, I don't know everything, but um, what I am aware of is historically there aren't free elections in Russia. Putin is a dictator and a tyrant who has assassinated people abroad and murdered journalists, um, oppressed homosexuals and uh, stolen elections and probably stolen a huge amount of wealth and dis uh, distributed some of that to some of his lackeys. Yeah, I get the feeling that this was a, a an illegal invasion of a, a of a sovereign country. That that's my position, yeah. uh, and he's not the only person I've discussed this with. And and the YouTube comments of this will will be we'll have people coming in and saying you're just a moron. You know, you you're not looking at the facts. Zelensky is a uh, he's a CIA. Uh, uh, he was put there by the CIA. And uh, this guy yesterday was saying, well, you know, the Ukrainians have been bombing Russians in the Donbass region for years. And like all this other information comes to you and it goes, oh, well, well, maybe they were. Yeah, they just want to. Well, what they, some of these people have just like made up their mind already and then fit the facts to the story that they want. So they are against Western governments, for example. And they've decided because of that, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They still live here, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's very convenient. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but, but, the, the, tr the truth is of it all is that I want to know the truth. Like, I'm, I'm pretty uh, convinced of my ideas with regards to Putin and Russia, but then have I been made to believe something by Western governments? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I have. Um, you know, but are, are there facts? I know there were conflicts. There were kind of like civil war type conflicts on the border regions with Russia. I'm fully aware of it. I've seen... Uh, a documentary regarding, I think it was a BBC documentary that talked about the uh, the, the Russian-speaking Russians who live in Ukraine and the Ukrainians and how destabilized the region was. You know, were they bombing? Like, I don't know. But things don't have to be black and white. No, no. But what I'm, but what, the point I think I'm getting to is like, I don't even know how to find the truth anymore. Yeah. And, and I don't feel like I even have uh, 
journalist resources that I know I can 100% trust. I find the whole thing very difficult, which leads me back to what you were just saying. The idea isn't to believe something, it's to doubt everything. And that's, I feel like that's where I am. I have like this paralysis. Yeah, I think as a society, we're still trying to adapt ourselves to this new technology that came around a few decades ago. Um, yeah. Like when historians look back at us, they're going to see it as probably as, as revolutionary as a printing press. And that caused centuries of civil war throughout Europe. <laughs> okay, so let, let's, let's get back to uh, Khashoggi. So where does he come into the story for you? Like, how did you know him? Was it working on this? So we'd known of him for a long time. He's, he was obviously one of the most influential and important journalists in the region. Um, and I'd never liked him. Um, okay. Yeah, he was um, staunchly pro-government. Um, he was like a, a true believer in the royal family's stewardship of Saudi Arabia. Um, and even though he was a pretty insightful social commentator and he did great investigative work, he was like, to, to me, he was the guy who almost got it. And then right at the end, he'd walk everything back and be like, this is why the people around the government are bad. And if they change their policy, they can be fantastic. Who's like Peter Schiff? Yeah. <laughs> I was going oh, to say, that's how people refer to me in Bitcoin. I'm oh, like, okay. They think of me as a guy who nearly got it and then walks it back. And he was like consistent on that okay. because he was fundamentally a pro-government guy. Do you, th do you think there are incentives at play at that point? He'd been in and out of royal circles his entire life. He'd right. always had access. He'd always had their ear. Um, he got the stories from them. Like he knew what was going on on the inside. Um, so do you, th do you think potentially that was the trade-off? He had to be partly pro-government to have access to be able to get those stories. I'm not sure if there was a trade-off. Maybe, no. like maybe he was, like maybe he just did believe that um, okay. things would have been worse without a strong government in place. Well, you no, know, you can make you can make an argument. Not everyone would agree with it, but you can make an argument. Well, we did discuss it earlier with Libya. Yeah, you know, we've made the argument. It was it was certainly better, net better uh, under Gaddafi. Even though the right path for the country is the removal of Gaddafi, and some people would make the same argument about Iraq. That Saddam Hussein was a horrendous tyrant who. You know, gas the Kurds, but it was a state, the country had some stability to it. I don't think anyone wants to advocate for stateless anarchy to yeah. emerge in their country. No, of um, course. But some people are, you know, more enthusiastically in favor of reform than others. And I guess you could call um, Jamal like a, a reform-minded establishment guy. Okay. He was part of the establishment. Um, but even for him, it got, it got to a point where he couldn't um, stand it anymore. Um, they shut down a media enterprise he was launching. They banned him from writing. Um, that happened to him multiple times through his career, and it would always have been like a few months, and then he'd be back. What, what was the reason for that? I can't remember. He wrote something that probably was construed as being slightly less pro-government than it should have been. Right. Um, MBS was a lot less thick skin than anyone who came before him so Jamal packed his bags and left the country and never went back um, he moved to the US he became a Washington Post columnist and he started to do some much more um, aggressive criticism of the way the country was heading he was watching these purges of intellectuals and activists and he wasn't that happy about it 
I guess to him, the, the final straw was that complete loss of any semblance of freedom of speech. And that's when our paths crossed because um, we were doing that work on um, the public sphere. And he was one of the biggest accounts, uh, one of the biggest Arabic language accounts on Twitter. And he was consequently one of the people who suffered most from that trolling and right. the bots. Um, and he'd comment on it a lot. Um, was he popular? Um, he was pretty popular, yeah, among a certain demographic. He was very well followed. Um, he was like an influential journalist. He always had the scoop and he knew what was going on. Right. Um, was he seen perhaps as a provocateur w within those circles? He was more reformist than most of the circle. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so but, but what was he calling for? Slightly more accountability, slightly more taking into account the perspectives of the population, like smoothing the edges of the system a little bit and like giving people more space to breathe, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, nothing drastic, yeah. but good kind of stuff. Achievable goals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can't remember how our paths crossed exactly, but we um, told um, Alex's team at the Human Rights Foundation that you guys have to bring this guy to the Oslo Freedom Forum. Okay. And we met that year. Um, in Oslo, and we introduced Jamal to um, one of the VPs at Twitter at the time. And um, we basically started shaping this initiative into something more formal. Like we decided with him that we're going to set up a center um, that's going to be focused on um, studying and advocating for the improvement of the public sphere in the Middle East. So people can, like his, his position was always, all you need to do is give people the freedom to speak and they'll do the rest. Like, they'll take care of all the reforms. You just need to give them the freedom to speak. And how much progress was made? It was very early days. So okay. that was, um, like, May 2018, and he was killed five months later. And, well, I don't want to say we know how he was killed, although we know how he was killed. We know how he was killed. Well, we know who killed him. Um, that's quite a brazen move by MBS, to, uh, to chop create... someone up in an well, embassy. I don't think everyone will know. So I think it's worth going through that. Yeah. Do you, so do you want to explain what happened with regards to the embassy? Yeah. He was um, trying to get married and he had to get a piece of paperwork. So they sent him to the Istanbul embassy. Um, unbeknown to him, they sent a hit squad. Was that a Saudi embassy? A Saudi embassy in Istanbul. So okay. they sent a hit squad and emptied the embassy um, on the day. When he arrived, they brought him in. Um, injected him with something and chopped him up. Strangled him and chopped him up. Yeah. Um, and do we know what happened with his body? Um, I think they burned it. I think that's what one of the intelligence um, reports said and then got rid of the ashes and allegedly they took the head back with them. Yeah, and, and this allegedly is under the instruction of MBS. Yeah. Was any actual direct evidence found that he instructed us? No. Um, we don't have like a recording of a call. Uh, we have a lot of circumstantial evidence and we also have the fact that nobody freelances in a country like Saudi Arabia. Like you don't do something drastic unless you absolutely know that your boss approves because otherwise they see you getting chopped up. But weren't people convicted and executed for it? Um, they were convicted, air quotes, um, like it was a sham trial. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they were executed. Can you look that up? Yeah. I, I, I could be wrong. I'm sure I read that and thought, huh. Yeah, so you I've, go there I've under read people are executed. So you go there under instruction, 
But it's part of the process of like washing your hands afterwards. To... Yeah. Um, so the guy who, um, like the, the guy who was who took the fall was Saud Al Khatani, who was MBS's right hand man, and he was the guy who was in charge of the Twitter trolls. Right. Like he okay. headed that department basically. It was quite brazen for MBS to openly execute somebody, um, a public figure. Yeah. With a, someone he had a known uh, dislike to, to openly do that on foreign territory. And I know uh, an embassy is considered sovereign territory within a foreign territory, but it's still in. It's still pretty out there. Yeah. 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 What was the reaction from the Arab world? Um, kind of difficult to tell because they um, accompanied that with massive online campaigns um, blaming Qatar. Uh, blaming Turkey, um, saying that the Turks had done it and tried to pin it on them in order to destroy Saudi Arabia's reputation. Um, the Saudi story kept changing day by day in the weeks afterwards. Um, initially, like, oh no, he left. Like, nothing happened. He came, he got his document, he left. And then there was a scuffle and he died by accident. And I can't remember what it became after that. Um, these are like rogue killers or something like that. Yeah. Did you find it? Yeah, five people were sentenced to death for it. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. So you're, But they were later commuted to prison terms. There you go. They might be in a cushy prison. Probably. Yeah. Can you talk to me about Pegasus? Firstly, explain what it is, because Pegasus was one of the technologies that was used to yeah. track uh, Khashoggi. So Pegasus is a piece of software developed by an Israeli company called NSO Group. Um, this company is staffed by like ex-Mossad, ex-intelligence people, and it exports this software with a license from the Israeli government. So they have to approve every country that they export it to um, individually. But, but that is also insane yeah. that the Saudi government is buying technology from the Israeli government who are considered mortal enemies. Well, it shows that in reality, they're a lot closer than it is convenient for either side to admit. Well, it's a well, bit, it's a bit like uh, Japan this week agreeing to buy oil from Russia uh, outside of uh, because some specific rule that isn't broken within the um, within the rules that said they can't. I, said, I, can't remember, I can't remember what I read, but I just like there are these double standards. Yeah, um, and they've played this double game for a long time of um, having this very anti-Israel stance for the Arab public. And being like, yeah, we support Palestinian rights, etc. And in reality, um, Israel feels very threatened by the existence of an, a Middle Eastern democracy. And Saudis are also very threatened by the existence of any Middle Eastern democracy. That's why they're so interventionist in the region. Like they don't want a model for an alternative. Um, so they cooperate closely on these things. Okay, so explain how Pegasus works and how they infiltrated his phone. So there's multiple versions of it, and I think um, the latest one at the time was ZeroClick. Um, they would basically uh, get this software on your phone without you having to... No, let me backtrack. The, the, the latest one at the time, they'd send you a link somehow. Um, like a text message. Yeah, they'd send you a text message saying, like, your Amazon delivery is scheduled, click this link to find out the details, and you'd click the link as soon as you've clicked it it's on your phone and your phone is compromised and they can hear anything the phone can hear, see anything the phone can see, access the files, etc. Okay. Um, after that, there was another version which was zero click and they'd do something 
I think they had exploited a bug in WhatsApp where they'd give you a missed call. And just by doing that, without any action on your end, you would have it on your phone. And is this all phones, Apple, Android? Um, the, I believe it was on all phones or all major phones. It, it amazes me that 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 can happen and there hasn't been a patch from Apple. It amazes um, me that software can be downloaded to your phone without you. Agreeing. It's another whack-a-mole kind of thing. Um, as soon as, um, like to their credit, the phone manufacturers are generally very fast at getting these patches out because it's a critical security vulnerability. But um, that's what a zero day is. Like you, you find a bug yeah, and you hide it until you have the opportunity to use it because as soon as people find out about it, it's going to be patched. Yeah. But but I would have thought the installation of software there 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 would have been something they can do to stop software being installed on your phone. But yeah, I guess it's a very difficult problem. I mean, it's yeah, it's out of my uh, level of understanding. And my understanding is like almost every government is probably using this, um, or yeah, a lot. Dozens of governments have been revealed to be using it. Um, there's European governments like Hungary who've been spying on journalists, Mexico. Um, a lot of Middle Eastern dictatorships, um, like a lot of countries that you wouldn't really expect from the from the visible perception to have been green-lighted, um, basically a digital weapon by Israel. Um, countries that you'd think have like an adversarial relationship. Um, there have also been um, uses of it in Western democracies targeting journalists. And this is just one tool among many, of course. Um, there are other ones, some of which we know about, probably a lot more that we don't. So you must then find it particularly frustrating to see Saudi Arabia sport washing their entire history because it isn't just the murder of Khashoggi. There's serious human rights abuses within Saudi Arabia. There is this ongoing war with Yemen, um, which is a lot of people refer to as the uh, the worst um, uh, human rights, some of the worst human rights violations. It's an absolute human humanitarian catastrophe. Yeah, um, it has, hasn't barely had any coverage compared to what we see of Russia, Ukraine. I've seen it. I've seen the blockade, which led to the uh, starvation. Um, uh, you know deaths of children. I've seen it all. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that complete hypocrisy of um, Western governments claiming that their support for Ukraine is about human rights when um, they'd happily turn a blind eye to what's happening in Yemen. Well, they um, have and provided weapons that have likely been used. Yeah. Um, and we don't need to get into the details of either war, but but it is an absolute catastrophe what's yeah. happened there. So you must find that particularly frustrating when you see... Newcastle United bought by a so explain the, the 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 corporate structure of that because is it that the investment fund from Saudi has to own fifty percent of everything therefore by virtue of Newcastle being bought they own fifty percent I can't remember the actual um, I don't know the details okay. is it PIF PIF yeah the public investment fund yeah um, and the head of the public investment fund Yasser Romayan who is now a director of Newcastle is a Saudi minister. Yeah, you were in the UK for, I, I don't know if it's just Premier League teams, I think it is, but they have a thing called a fit and proper persons test. Yeah, the director's test. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Which doesn't seem to do anything. 
apparently they're tightening up this week, but mm. I don't think they actually want to. Like, they're tightening it up without tightening it up. So I've got something I want to show you. This is a... Uh, this isn't because of the interview. I bought this about five months ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was only this morning when um, we started running through some of the notes. I remembered I had this. So I've got the Newcastle, now Saudi green shirt. Yep. I love it. Yeah. So I bought it. So anyone listening, uh, about five months ago, I bought the uh, Newcastle. Hold it for the camera. Uh, third shirt where they agreed to change their logo and everything to green, the Saudi color. And I thought, you fuckers. Uh, and I got Khashoggi on the back in 18 because the year he was murdered. And I've, I've, I, haven't, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. Part of me wants to go to a game and where part of me wants to just run on the fucking pitch with it. <laughs> just lay it in the middle of the center circle. So this whole kind of um, sports washing thing is part of the social reforms in Saudi Arabia. And it's like... Can we just back up on that? So mm -hmm. when you say social reforms, you said it earlier, and I didn't, I didn't, it didn't trigger as a, a pejorative to me. It's not meant to be pejorative, but these are kind of soft reforms which don't disturb the power structure. Sorry, pejorative is the wrong term. I didn't, I didn't notice, I didn't realize the cynicism you had towards it. Yeah. Is this, yeah, so... So they're reforms without being real reforms. Like yeah. you let people have their bread and circuses, but you don't actually give them what they really want, which is more accountability, um, a more functioning economic system, a more functioning political system, the, the right to determine what happens to them um, and to choose their own destiny. And that's what people actually want, not the ability to go to concerts in, in, in Jeddah. Yeah. Um, and it's particularly galling to go back right to the beginning of the conversation like as a Muslim, it's particularly galling to see a dictator like MBS um, use as a central plank of his legitimacy that he's um, creating social liberalization in a conservative region where the entire reason why he needs to create that social liberalization is because his family spent decades um, spending billions of dollars to normalize an ultra-conservative form of my religion across the world. Using your religion, yeah, interpret it incorrectly to maintain authoritarian control. Exactly. Yeah, and now we're stuck with it. Like we don't have um, like the institutions which maintain those interpretations and maintain that control are entrenched because they're wedded to the political structures, which are wedded to the economic structures, and we can't even talk about it freely. Like we can't even discuss it. We can't even have debates. And meanwhile, he can. Well, he could travel to Western capitals, to Western capitals, and talk about how he's doing all these reforms, and um, basically paint the picture that the region needs a benevolent dictator because we're so backward that we can't be trusted to rule ourselves. This show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest Nasdaq-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events 
and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. Now, if you're still holding your Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because as you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign a Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same device I bought back then, and I absolutely love their products. Now, Ledger is running a promo right now. If you buy a Ledger Nano, you can get $30 back in Bitcoin, and this offer will be running until the 18th of April. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. Yeah, and not only does uh, it lead to this authoritarian control over these countries, but actually it leads to a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of who Muslim people are across the world. You know, we have a we have a significant amount of Islamophobia here in this country. Uh, it happens in the US as well. As I said, I, in, I interviewed Laura Luma, who, um, you know, a lot of her attention has been focused on uh, Islam and, you know, the things that she sees, the, the cliches that she falls into with the criticisms of Islam. And But my understanding from meeting people like you and the taxi driver people I've met is, is actually, it is a peaceful religion. We're a community and like every community, we have our problems. We have like areas we've gone wrong. We have... Um, conflict with others we have conflicts among ourselves it's not really a homogenous entity in any way um but that isn't really visible to most people because the power is entirely on one side well what they see is dictators and war and terrorists exactly they're misled um what did you make of live golf and the i'm gonna put words in your mouth almost now but i just gotta say it that fucking embarrassing statements we've got from the various golfers who've either openly admitted, yeah, I'm in it for the money, or have given some convoluted reason because they don't want to say, I'm in it for the money, but every one of them is in it for the money. I'm not following Live Golf too much, but I find that very refreshing. Um, I'd be happier if um, politicians just said we're in it for the money as yeah. well. It would um, it would give us a break from the 
relentless kind of um, upholding of these slogans about freedom and democracy and human rights that clearly mean nothing. What about actually, let me just, what about Qatar? I know you said the the oil monarchies are in a better position, but, um, and I thought the World Cup was a particularly brilliant World Cup, great football. Um, I thought, uh, I thought they put on a brilliant competition. Uh, everybody I spoke to who went said it was so well organized. Like it seemed like a very good World Cup. Was that also sport washing? Um, it was the use of sport to bolster a company, uh, a country's reputation. But even the many countries around have, you know, so, the UK has a terrible history of colonialism. Yeah. And where know, do you where do you draw the line? Yeah, about where do you draw the line? Like uh, when I first heard about it, I just felt like it wasn't a country that deserved it. Not for any human rights reasons, it's just not a footballing country. Yeah, well, another fabulously corrupt organisation, <laughs> FIFA. Of course, of course, thanks, sir. Um, you know, but in hindsight, I think they did a brilliant job. But yeah, at the time. And then I uh, was particularly concerned with the treatment of workers and yeah. you know, the deaths of workers. And, you know, that, you know, I interviewed a Guardian journalist, Pete, I can't remember his name, but, uh, regarding that. Um, uh, and, then, and then when it came around, I was, I was like, I'm not going to watch this World Cup. And then I obviously got sucked in because I love yeah. football and I felt hypocritical. But at the same time, I was like, well, do you know what? Has Qatar embracing the World Cup, embracing a lot of foreign travel into the country and becoming part of a global community there, could that help push towards reforms within their country? Maybe. Um, (laughs) Not really sure. Um, To your credit, whilst enjoying the World Cup, you have spoken out about human rights abuses, about the abuse of labor rights. And that's like the most... I could ask of anyone, like, I wouldn't ask someone to not watch the World Cup. I watched the World Cup. Um, to their credit, at least Qatar are not chopping up journalists in embassies, even though they have, you know, their fair share of human rights abuses to deal with. Um, so they're, you know, uh, an authoritarian Middle Eastern dictatorship, but they're not quite in the same bucket as the UAE and Saudi Arabia to me. Okay, can we talk about, this is a long lead up to talk about Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Because I didn't know about this. Like, I'd heard something about Jeff Bezos' phone being hacked, not until we went into this uh, uh, prepare, uh, preparation for this, I had the details, and I was like, what? How is this not more public yeah, so the story, it's a pretty crazy story. I'm going to have yeah. to like jump around a little to give the full context because yeah. there's lots of moving parts. Um, it connects to where we were earlier, basically, with um, Jamal. Um, so we met him in May 2018 at the Oslo Freedom Forum. We introduced him to Twitter. We were planning this initiative to monitor disinformation um, and to you know take action on it. And in the middle of those plans, he basically told us, like, send us the proposal, send me the proposal, and I'll chop it around to my contacts and see if I can get you funding. And in the middle of that, he gets killed. Um, and we used um, those techniques that we'd been developing to um, track the aftermath of the murder. Yep. So we watched how Saudi Arabia was basically using um, online narratives to confuse people about what had actually happened, about who Jamal Khashoggi was, who was responsible. Um, And in the midst of that, we were seeing a bunch of stuff that didn't make sense to us at the time. 
Um, so park that thread and we'll start another thread for a second. Um, there's a, a tabloid in the US called the National Enquirer. Yeah. You know them? Well, I mean, I know for two reasons. Firstly, I know it is a bit of a shit rag. Um, But also, I know of it from, um, there was a podcast series I listened to called To Catch and Kill, which is about um, originally Harvey Weinstein that led to Trump. And I believe the National Enquirer was used to catch and kill stories or something. I can't remember the exact detail, but... Yeah, and they were um, in legal trouble for this. Um, so I don't know the, de- the full details either, but something involving corruption. Um, and they'd been... They'd had a plea deal, essentially, that they admitted to a lot of legal stuff. In exchange, they got immunity, but with a very strict condition that if you do one more illegal thing, you lose the immunity and you get prosecuted for all of it. Um, So in 2018, early 2018, like there's a lot of parallel threads here, but um, I don't know if you remember, MBS took this uh, trip to the US. I do. And he met like the who's who of US politics, culture, media, business. Um, Like he met with Zuckerberg, he met with uh, Bezos, I think, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Gates, etc. Um, and there was a magazine that came out around the same time. It's like a glossy hundred page magazine titled The New Kingdom. And it's like a hundred page advert for MBS's vision for Saudi Arabia um, with no ads published by the National Enquirer. Um, 200,000 copies distributed nationwide um, of their own accord, of course. I mean, be very clear about that point. <laughs> it is an ad. Um, even though um, there are emails showing that they had sent a copy of the magazine to the Saudi embassy three weeks before publishing it. Um, So the Saudi embassy had seen the contents and approved it, I would say. Um, Copy checked it. MBS gets back from that trip, having had like a fantastic time and um, like the whole world is behind him, excited about these reforms happening in Saudi Arabia. We'd spent the whole time like shouting from the rooftops that this guy is bad news, but nobody listened. Um, so he comes back and he arrests all of the women's rights activists in the country because um, that's what he does every time he feels empowered by the, the West. He escalates the repression. He feels like it's a, a license to, st- to take a step forward. Is, 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 this, is it him fearing uprisings or is he, does he just want control? Does he just want to exercise control? He's extremely controlling and extremely paranoid. He's um, paranoid. Yeah. yeah. I, allegedly, at the time, he was sleeping on a yacht off the coast. Um, I think that's because he was consolidating his power and he even feared his own family, like a coup within the family. Wow. Um, so anyway, he gets back and does that purge of all the women's rights activists. Um, this is around the time we're talking to Jamal. Um, he is killed. And then the Washington Post, where he was a columnist, kind of takes up the cause and decides, like, we're not going to let this be forgotten. Someone has to um, be held accountable for this. And they keep it as a story in the media for weeks. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. Like, it was a big thing. Um, And we're seeing these um, aggressive campaigns online, in the Arabic language, on Twitter, um, demonizing Jeff Bezos. Um, Jeff Bezos, like... uh, the Jew who controls the Washington Post. Oh, yeah, because he, he bought Washington Post. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's not even Jewish, by the way, but anti-Semitism yeah. is how they roll. Um, 
So they're demonizing him, they're abusing him, calling him slurs and advocating for a boycott in Saudi Arabia of uh, Amazon um, because Jeff Bezos is a racist who's against Saudi Arabia and wants to see the country fail and this proud country will blah, 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 blah. Um, and every time something major happens, like um, I think, so Jamal was murdered on October the 2nd, but I think on October the 15th, um, the Washington Post published an op-ed by Erdogan, uh, president of Turkey, yeah. um, pointing the finger at Saudi, and that led to like an explosion of um, the stuff online. Um, but there were a, a few surges of activity that we didn't really understand at the time. Um, then, um, early January, um, the National Enquirer, National Enquirer publishes a special issue um, with Jeff Bezos's texts showing infidelity and he gets divorced like the next day he answers his divorce and obviously there's like a lot of gloating and a lot of triumphalism on Saudi social media with these um, uh, inauthentic accounts and then in early February he suddenly releases this article on Medium where he says he's been the victim of an extortion attempt or a blackmail attempt and he says, I received this letter yesterday from the uh, owner of the National Enquirer um, asking for a couple of very specific things. Um, obviously, he'd had his security team investigating the source of the leaks of his texts. Um, and the security team had basically said to the media um, towards the end of January that we think there's a political motive. They immediately get a letter from the National Enquirer saying... Um, there is absolutely no political motive to this. Like, drop that line of inquiry. Um, and then he gets this uh, letter from them saying, um, we have photos as well, basically like naked selfies, and uh, we're going to offer you a deal. We won't publish those selfies if you make a public statement that we have not been involved in hacking or electronic eavesdropping of any kind and that there is no foreign involvement or direction in um, this whole thing like, on, whatsoever. That's, that's just like blatant blackmail. Yeah, it's blackmail. Yeah. And it's very specific blackmail, that, which is yeah. quite strange. And very strange that the National Enquirer would openly blackmail. Danny, can you just look up uh, National Enquirer blackmail... Jeff Bezos. So there's a, an article in the Daily Beast by Gavin De Becker, who is his head of security, yeah. um, basically like stating the facts of the case. Yeah, but hold on. This is, uh, uh, and this is also the, in the article that Bezos published in Medium. But it feels like there's something criminal in this with the National Enquirer. I, I wouldn't know what law has been broken. It, it certainly feels like that. Yeah. Um, and this is... And, and Bezos kind of states in his article that they became, um, they basically lost their shit as soon as they mentioned that they were investigating like a Saudi angle. Because if you remember, they had like this plea deal, which said if you um, engage in one more criminal act, you lose the immunity. Um, and if they've been taking direction from the Saudis for anything without registering as a foreign agent under the Farah law, then they've broken the law. Hmm. Um, I'm still also partly amazed that Jeff Bezos is sending cock photos about. <laughs> just you just would have thought someone like Jeff Bezos' security team said, "Look, Jeff, 
you need to be really careful. Here. <laughs> you're Jeff Bay. You're the richest guy in the world. No dick bit, pics. Yeah, no dick pics. Well, it says here that uh, Dylan Howard, the chief content officer at the National Enquirer, uh, said, call off the Washington Post investigation or we'll publish your dick pic. Wow. I mean, that's insane. So um, when we read these articles, we published saying like, um, this is really interesting. Here's our angle. And we um, kind of lined up the timelines and said like, um, it was really fascinating for us because on the day where he published that article saying, yesterday I received an a blackmail attempt, the day before we had observed a surge in that kind of anti-Bezos um, trolling on social media. And it was like really triumphalistic and gloating. And we were confused by it at the time. We were like, this seems to have like the other ones lined up with stuff and this one seems to be random. Um, and suddenly it made sense because it happened at the time that he was receiving that letter, but that letter was not public. No one knew about it apart from the people responsible for it and Bezos himself. And we published that and we said like, this also happened on the day before the National Enquirer published the original texts and it happened on a bunch of other dates and some of them weren't explained, but we put them out anyway. Um, his security team got in touch with us and said, um, like we, we need the rest of your information. We shared it with them. They went and checked those dates and then they came back and said on one of those dates, his phone suddenly started uploading gigabytes of information to an unknown server by itself. Um, they checked around it, what, what had happened before that. He'd received a WhatsApp video from Mohammed bin Salman. Wow. Yeah. From the personal phone number of Mohammed bin Salman. Like, not through intermediaries, no attempt to uh, like disguise it. What was on that video? If I recall, it was like a like a New Year's greeting, like firework little. A request for a dick pic. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So how did how did that all wrap up the whole Jeff Bezos thing? Um, I'm not sure how it ended, but Gavin De Becker submitted a dossier to uh, U.S. authorities after he like after he'd finished that investigation. It it is this weird scenario though. If Jeff Bezos. It, if Pegasus is on his phone, I feel like everyone is captured. Yeah, if the most powerful man or one of the most powerful yeah. men in the world can be blackmailed so blatantly, yeah. who can't be? And, uh, and the Bezos story is only interesting because he said no and he basically like torpedoed himself. How many people got the same kind of threat and they just said, yeah, sure, I'll do whatever you want? Exactly. It's almost like when you, t you mentioned earlier, those zero day attacks, you... You don't tell anyone. You save until you need it. It's yeah. like, um, I don't know, zero-day dick pics. Like, you've got that thing where you've got or whatever shit. Someone's having an affair. Someone's done something corrupt. Yeah, I've got, I mean, I think we all have stuff on our phone. We wouldn't want to become public. Um, so but, the thing that keeps me up at night is yeah. how many people are there in the media or in um, senior political positions in Western democracies who have who also captured. been captured and who we don't know about because they haven't had the courage to come out and say so. They've just gone along with it. They're either actively captured or don't know they've been captured. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, it's trying to make me think of people who've done stupid shit. And you're like, why did they do that? Everyone's done something stupid. No, no, no. Like publicly. Oh, right. Like, I wonder what's happened, who's been captured and when you would save them from. But it sounds like 
everybody is captured. Like anyone can have this on the phone. Anyone could be captured. It's almost like there is uh, lots of like like what the NSA did. These databases yeah. of people, and they kind of normalized this pervasive data capture and invasion of privacy. And now it's gone round and it's being used against citizens of, and residents of Western democracies. Yeah. But I'm also surprised if it, this does exist, there aren't more people who've also come forward and said, I've been blackmailed. More people like Jeff Bezos. Yeah. But I guess it has to be at such a serious level where, you know, you've got that marriage of richest guy in the world owning a important national newspaper in the US which employed the person that Saudi Arabia or MBS allegedly instructed the murder of. Like, there are those connections enough to yeah. go, okay, this is worth using now. But they've been so sophisticated in getting this information that the approach to get the National Enquirer to blackmail him seems a very naive execution of it. It's a very strange case. So the National Enquirer were pretty close to Trump, um, they had like a lot of connections to Trump. Um, the, the the catch and kill the, the yeah. stories and the guy in charge, uh, David Pecker, had basically been around a lot when MBS made that tour. Um, so there's like that, like a whole constellation of characters who were pretty tight together. And so security, it's really weird because security um, won't be publicly against this because they're most probably using it. So it's like a it's like a new it's a, it's like a new information war. It's like a hidden information war. It's a yeah compromising information war. And there hasn't been much particularly strong action taken yet. Even though this has reached the highest levels, it was revealed a few years ago that several ministers in the French cabinet had been hacked with Pegasus. Um, I'm not sure if they ever revealed who'd done it, but I think the main culprit was Morocco, the government of Morocco. Um, I'm trying to remember who else high profile. Like, there's obviously loads of activists, loads of journalists. Um, bad things happen to a lot of them. I'm starting to think I don't want a phone anymore. You need that dumb phone that you bought. What was it called? Light phone. Uh, uh, maybe that could be compromised. Um, okay. So what is, like, uh, this is insane. I'm going to have to take some time to get my head around this all. But what... What is the outcome of it? What you know, where do, where where are you going with this now? What are you working on? What what are you actively trying to do? So right now, aside from that, we're we're kind of trying to build our institution, Coekibi Foundation, yeah. um, in order that we can continue to pull on these threads of uh, issues critical to the future of um, human rights and freedom in the Middle East and in the world at large, because everything's interconnected. Um, things that are critical on the long term kind of like 20 years and up and which are not getting the amount of attention and work which they deserve. So this work with disinformation, um, we've called it the Jamal Khashoggi Disinformation Monitor um, in memory of our friend. Um, and it's like a stand, like a permanent standing program within the organization. Maybe we'll spin it off someday when it's independent enough. Um, we have a bunch of other projects and we're basically like focused on our sustainability. And if people want to find out more or support you, how can they? Um, our website is coerkaby.org. Um, you can find it in my Twitter bio, I guess. Um, we'll share it out anyway. Thanks. This might be a bit of a sidetrack, but 
you talked a bit about um, kind of the fallout in Libya after the Arab, string, Arab Springs, and yep. you're working with people there now using psychedelics. Um, not people who are there now, okay. um, but we have a program called Chifa, which is so one of those um, areas which we've identified is mental health. Um, it's a massive crisis globally, but particularly in this region. Um, there was a study in the Lancet a few years ago that estimated 70% of Libya's population suffers from PTSD. Um, probably like PTSD is notoriously hard to um, diagnose. Like it's, it's not, it's a complex condition, um, but there's probably like massive rates of it across the region. And um, that's a systematic issue that causes people to behave in particular ways, to be difficult, to struggle to relate to other people. Um, and we are looking at ways of addressing that. Um, the conventional mental health system is is failing even here, never mind in Libya, where I think on the last count there was like less than five psychotherapists in the country. Um, A population of how many? Six or seven million. Okay. Okay. Um, who've been experiencing a decade of war following 40 years of dictatorship uh, during which people were hung in the streets and in universities. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of trauma. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know if you've been following, but over the last few years, there's been a lot of research coming out about the potential of psychedelics. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Yeah, psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, especially MDMA, um, incredibly promising for PTSD. Yeah, they've I used have, it on soldiers. They have used, yeah. a lot of the studies are on soldiers. Um, I think one of the big studies was on Vietnam War veterans with um, an average of something like 20 years um, chronic treatment-resistant severe PTSD. Um, and a lot of them basically no longer met the diagnosis threshold after three sessions of MDMA-assisted therapy. I mean, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so uh, it's like the the penicillin of the mind. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful drug if used rightly. Yeah, you know, it stimulates uh, serotonin levels to to rise, and serotonin levels rising, yeah, you know, warms the body and warms the heart and soul. So I'm not su I'm not yeah. surprised. It switches off the amygdala for a while, so yeah. you can process some of the worst things that have happened to you in your life without feeling that fear response. Yeah. Um, and we basically have a program where we're researching and we're going to be educating about um, how these can be used in the region in a kind of culture and religion sensitive manner um, to address some of the issues that we have. Isn't it strange though, that there are all these, uh, medicinal benefits to so many of these drugs, whether it's marijuana treatments, which I wanted to treat my, you know, we wanted to treat my mother with when she had cancer to, uh, psychedelics to MDMA. Yet there's this real aversion from a lot of governments to even consider allowing this. It takes a lot of time and effort to get, get them to consider allowing this with so much, uh, data that there's so many data points that prove to how yeah. beneficial they are to society. It's sad that they're so dogmatic about it. Do you yeah. know how this uh, the war on drugs came to be? I do, but I cannot remember. But your the, the Nixon story. There you go. Yeah. So um, allegedly, this is what I've read um, in the eighties. Was it the eighties around the Vietnam War time? Uh, no, the sixties. Sixties Vietnam, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, around the Vietnam War. Um, there was this whole counterculture being Was it 60s or was it 70s? Because they came off the gold standard to finance the Vietnam War, and that was 1971. 
it's strange how all these dates are connected. Yeah. Um, but around uh, the Vietnam War, there was this whole counterculture being fueled by um, psychedelic drugs and people were um, opting out of a lot of the social norms and they were refusing the draft to go and fight because they realized that this was oppressive and unjust and they didn't want to participate. And President Nixon was extremely threatened by this and realized that um, psychedelic drugs were um, being very subversive so he decided to ban them for that reason. And then all of the justifications in terms of health came afterwards. Hmm. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a whole conversation itself. Um, incredible. Uh, Mind-blowing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And uh, yes, we should definitely do this again sometime. I appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for coming here. See you next time. Okay. Would you make it that? Pretty wild, that story, right? Now, I know we didn't talk about Bitcoin too much in this one, but these tangential issues of free speech, human rights, and the corruption of power always interest me, and they always resonate with listeners of the show. So I'm always going to cover these types of stories. But if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, keep your fingers crossed today. Hopefully, we're going to win the league. We need one more point. And also, if you want to come to our live event on Friday with Jeff Booth, James Lavish, Lawrence Lepard, and Ben Ark in Bedford, just head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live.